Lord, as we now prepare our own hearts for the preaching of your word, we ask, O Lord, that you would bless the preaching of your word, and we recognize that if you do not bless it, that it is in vain. We ask, O Lord, that you would illuminate the text for us by the power of your spirit. Help us to understand, prevent us from falling into error, guide us into truth. Your word is truth. And we ask that you would sanctify us in your truth for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. You'll see that I'm drinking from a big mug today. That's because three days ago I couldn't even talk. Uh, Praise the Lord. I wasn't even sure how today was going to turn out, but I'm okay. Uh, I, I got sick this week, just like so many other people have been getting sick. Um, but so I've got my, my warm, uh, my warm uh, water up here. This will be good for me. Uh, Lord willing, I'll make it all the way through uh, a sermon today. <laughs> but we're going to be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 30 as we continue in our study of uh, 1 Samuel. Um, there have been a lot of articles and a lot of things being said these days about how Christians shouldn't be conspiracy theorists. And to, to an extent, I agree with that. Uh, we should be a people of the truth. And we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't be uh, assuming the worst about things. We shouldn't be um, you know, looking at vain speculations and things like this. That those things are absolutely true. At the same time, I don't think that any Christian should be uncomfortable with the term conspiracy theorist because if you're a Christian who believes what the Bible says, guess what? You are a conspiracy theorist. Let me explain for you. I made a discovery this week that might, might surprise some of you. It actually surprised me. I didn't realize that this was a conspiracy theory. Uh, the discovery that I made is that there are people in the science community who think that well, basically, anyone who believes everything the Bible teaches is a conspiracy theorist. Um, now, the, the term conspiracy theorist uh, might have actually come from the CIA. Nobody's exactly sure. The conspiracy theory about conspiracy theories is that its purpose was to impose peer pressure on people as a means of inducing conformity among all the masses, right? Well, one article which explains this says this. It says, quote, conspiracy theories have a long history, but the actual term conspiracy theory emerged more recently. It was only a few decades ago that the term took on the derogatory connotations it has today, where to call someone a conspiracy theorist functions as an an insult, end quote. Now, one of the so-called conspiracy theories that is floating around out there, uh, if you search the internet and everything, is the idea that giants once lived upon the earth. That's a conspiracy theory. I found one article on a science website titled, Giant Humans Have Never and Will Never Exist, Here's Why. And the subtitle was this, The Popular Conspiracy Theory Does Not Hold Water, and This Is Why. Well, the problem with that for the Christian who takes the Word of God very seriously is the fact that the Bible very, very clearly teaches that giants once did roam the earth. Uh, yes, I realize that there are videos out there and pictures out there on the internet which 
at least appear to attest to the veracity of their existence even in the modern era, uh, but you have to acknowledge that at least some of them are extremely questionable. What isn't questionable, however, is that the Bible does speak of a race of giants that once existed on the earth. Uh, Whether they do today or not, I don't know. And frankly, I, I don't care. But if we take the Bible very seriously, as I think every biblically-minded Christian should, we do believe that giants at least used to exist on the earth. So if you believe what the Bible teaches, as you should, be prepared to be labeled as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, hopefully, you don't care. Hopefully, you, you kind of welcome the title, uh, especially when it comes to something like this. I would suggest that you just don't care because the same people who deny things like you know, giants uh, you know, existed probably also doubt things such as the resurrection of Christ. They probably also doubt things such as the creation of the universe ex nihilo, from nothing. But toward the end of the Exodus, Moses recruited several spies to go out and to scout out the promised land in Canaan. And this is what we read in Numbers chapter 13, verses 25 to 29. It says, When they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large and moreover this is the important part and moreover we saw the descendants of Anak there Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan Now the thing we want to draw our attention to in that passage is that they saw the descendants of Anak in this location. Because when we get to verse 33, we learn who these descendants of Anak are. They report this. They said, There we also saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The Anakim were a breed, a, a race of giants. During the time of Joshua, serving as, of course, Moses' replacement, the Anakim were driven uh, out of the Promised Land. These giants were, were driven out of the Promised Land. But where did they end up going? That's an important question. But it's answered in Joshua chapter 11, verse 22, which says, There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod some remained. Gaza right? Gath and Ashdod. The giants who were referred to there as the Anakim were never completely dealt with. Some remained, and we don't know how long they remained for, at least a few generations. And all of this is good for us to know because today we come to one of the most famous stories in the Bible which involves a giant from Gath. Of course, this is uh, the story of David, Uh, David and a giant named Goliath of Gath. 
Uh, this story is so well known in our culture. It's even known by uh, people who have never been inside of a church. Uh, everybody's heard of the term David and Goliath. Uh, even in secular sports, uh, they'll use the term you know, David and Goliath to refer to you know, what might look like an apparent mismatch, right? Uh, when one team looks like a giant and the other one just looks like uh, a grasshopper in comparison. Uh, but a few chapters back in our study of 1 Samuel, we saw that the Philistines were, uh, were soundly defeated in war by the Israelites, but that they were not eliminated entirely. And the reason that they weren't eliminated entirely is because Saul uh, was a tyrant because of his sin. Uh, he let them get away uh, to fight another day because Saul was more consumed with uh, pursuing his own agenda and his own fame and glory than he was in you know, being obedient to God and being a good king uh, by doing things God's way. But the Philistines escaped. And the fact that the Philistines escaped could pretty much ensure for us that they would be back and that they would be bigger and stronger than ever. Uh, and in fact, they do come back. And not only do they come back in this passage that we'll be looking at today, but they come back with a man who seems to have been kind of their version of Samson, the mighty judge who was remembered for his incredible strength and might. The difference was that Samson, on his own, didn't have any strength or might. Uh, those attributes were actually supernaturally given to him, which is why the Philistines would wonder uh, where he possibly got his strength and might from. The reality is, uh, it's very likely, it's probable that Samson was a scrawny little dude. And that's why they wondered his strength is in his arms. His strength is in his, his torso. He's a big, strong guy. But people wondered where Samson got his strength because, he, because he, his, his strength was supernatural. He was probably a pretty small man. But when it comes to Goliath of Gath, on the other hand, his, his strength and might are obvious. He is a gigantic and imposing figure, physically speaking, and he is what you might refer to as, if you know hockey, he is the Philistines' great equalizer, or so they think. The equalizer is the guy who goes out there, and he's not a very good player, but he can sure hurt people. You know, he's just a big dude, right? The enforcer. And so, uh, so King Saul, uh, he also sees this as their great equalizer. Uh, but David... David doesn't. David doesn't see Goliath as an equalizer in any way because David has a confident faith that the Lord has more might than all the forces of the earth combined. And so we're going to be covering 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 to 30 today. And the point of this passage is that our response to difficulties and dangers has a way of revealing what we really believe about God. And God is greatly glorified when we stand firmly on his promises in our most difficult trials. Our response to difficulties and to dangers has a way of revealing what we really think about God, what we really feel about and believe about God. And God is greatly glorified when we stand firmly on his promises in our most difficult trials. Now, the author of this text, the author of 1 Samuel, whoever it might be, he goes to great lengths to describe the location of the showdown that's about to take place and the appearance of Goliath of Gath. Let's start with verses 1 to 7. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. 
And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah, and they drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. When a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. The presence of all these details. It's there for a reason. It's so that we can see kind of what they saw. And these kinds of details being revealed to us, it also reveals that this is is a real event. Uh, when there's a real event, you don't you know, name de- uh, specific details like this, especially not specific locations. Uh, so this isn't something that you might dismiss as a myth or as a fairy tale or even a fish tale, which is just a story in which uh, real details just get wildly exaggerated. No, we're given some very specific geographical references which reveal the location of this showdown to be about 13 miles west of Bethlehem. But in response to the Philistines taking up uh, their armies for battle, uh, King Saul calls his own men to take up arms and prepare for war. Archaeologists have actually pinpointed this exact location, and given what the text tells us uh, and what archaeology has discovered, what we have here is a picture of two armies camped out uh, in a valley on uh, either side of a ravine that often floods with winter rains in the wintertime. Now here's what we know. We know that this is not King Saul's first time going to war, is it? No, he's gone to war several times. Uh, he's, He's got experience doing that. But this is, we should see, his first battle since the Lord had his spirit depart from him. This is Saul's first battle on his own. In the previous battles he's faced, the Spirit of God was upon him, aiding him, equipping him, guiding him and the Israel army to victory. But this would be Saul's first battle that he'd have to face on his own strength, his own valor, his own wisdom, or lack thereof. It'll be important to remember that throughout the text, that this is the first time that Saul has gone to war on his own strength. We're told in verse 4, Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, Philistines named Goliath from Gath. Recognize that name? Gath? What was in Gath? The giants. The Anakim. So we're told, Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, those measurements convert to about nine and a half feet in our measurements that we use here in the United States. Uh, today, the tallest person in the world is a man named Sultan Kosin, uh, who measures just shy of eight foot three. 
uh, which is pretty tall. Uh, that's pretty imposing, if you ask me. The tallest person on record, according to Guinness, like Guinness Book of World Records, uh, was an American man named Ro- uh, Robert Wadlow, who measured eight foot eleven uh, in height. Uh, that's less than a foot shorter than Goliath would have been, but still, Goliath stands even taller than the tallest man in the world, according to modern science and modern history. But not only was Goliath incredibly tall, but he was incredibly strong. Uh, He had some brute force that was exponentially greater than the strongest man in Israel's army. Verse 5 tells us that he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. If you're not sure how heavy that is, uh, that converts over to about 126 pounds. 126 pounds of armor on his chest. Only an incredibly, incredibly strong man would be able to bear that kind of weight. Beyond that, he had bronze greaves on his leg, uh, on his legs, and a javelin made of bronze that he had slung between his shoulders. He carried well over 150 pounds of armor, uh, and he has one man carrying his shield for him. Uh, that's how much. That's how, how how big he is. That's how strong he is. Uh, and further, he had a spear. The head of his spear weighed six hundred shekels of iron. Uh, that's roughly fifteen pounds of hard and, and heavy metal. Uh, that thing was going to pierce anything, uh, any metal that was used for armor that it came up against. Anything that his adversaries wore uh, was just gonna gonna wither like tinfoil. Well, the danger in going to battle with a man of this size is, is pretty obvious, right? He's, he's tall, he's going to have more, uh, more length than anybody else, so he's going to be able to strike you fairly easily and well before you're even able to get within striking distance of him. And so we can be sure that Goliath had learned how to use, as a warrior, he'd learned how to use his height, he learned how to use his reach, not to mention his incredible strength, all to his advantage on the battlefield, making him the most imposing figure imaginable to the human eye. But Goliath was not only an imposing figure, but he also represented something. He also was symbolic of something. A.W. Pink writes this. He says, quote, Goliath pictures to us the great enemy of God and man, the devil, seeking to terrify and bring into captivity those who bear the name of the Lord, end quote. And I think that as we continue in our text, uh, this fact that he is not only a, a literal figure who, who, who literally was imposing, but that he also represents a sort of satanic uh, uh, villain, in a sense, that's going to become increasingly evident as we progress with the story, especially as we consider the taunts that he lobs at Israel. Let's continue with verses 8 to 11. It says, He stood... And shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him, let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants or slaves. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, 
I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Goliath of Gath was there for battle. But he was really there for two purposes, two primary purposes. First of all, he's there to make a mockery of God's people and to mock God. But secondly, he's also there to enslave God's people. It's in this sense that he is truly seen as a reflection of satanic and and demonic forces. While the army of the Philistines was somewhat evenly matched with the army of Israel, the fact is there wasn't a single person in all of Israel's army who could possibly match the size and strength of this giant. And so instead of the armies you know, engaging in war and going to war man-to-man like they typically did, the challenge that's laid down this time is for somebody from Israel's army, one man from Israel's army, to come forth as a representative of Israel and to fight to the death. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me, he says. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Give me a man that we may fight together. He's thrown down the gauntlet. And who would dare to even think about picking up that gauntlet. Who would dare to engage in a battle to the death with a man of this size and this strength, such a, such a brute warrior? Maybe the better question, instead of those questions, maybe the better question is, who should be the one to pick up the gauntlet? Because that answer is really easy. The answer to that is King Saul. Don't forget, Saul was the tallest man in all of Israel And that's why they wanted him to be their king. He looked like he was fit to be king because he was so tall. Well, that detail doesn't seem to matter one bit at this point, does it? But it was Saul's stature, his size, his height, that so thoroughly impressed the Israelites that they would be so easily agreeable to him being their king, really taking God's place in their eyes. They had wanted a king who was like the kings of all the nations around them. And they wanted a king who would, as we read in chapter 8, verse 20, uh, one of the expectations they had, they wanted a king who would go out before us and fight our battles. Well, so much for that idea. You guys got a plan B in mind? Uh, Yeah, Saul is terrified, just like everybody else. Proverbs 28.1 says that the righteous are bold as a lion. And it turns out that Saul bears more resemblance to a possum uh, than he does to a lion because instead of boldly taking up the gauntlet, we're told that when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They weren't just afraid. There's an adjective in there. They were greatly afraid. Uh, There isn't one righteous man in all of Israel's army. That's what we need to see there. There's not one righteous man among them, not even one. Even Jonathan, even Jonathan, who who had so boldly gone against the Philistines in war before, just a few chapters back, even he seems to have cowered in fear 
at the sight of Goliath. There's not one righteous man among them. The Israelites are therefore powerless against Goliath. And this reminds us that we ourselves are powerless against the satanic and demonic forces of this world if we do not have God with us and for us, empowering us, enabling us, guiding us, strengthening us, aiding us, not to mention freeing us. The unregenerate person cannot contend with Satan. Which is exactly why we're told things like the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's from 2 Corinthians 4.4. See, the world, like the Israelites already, even though they won't admit it, the world and the Israelites are enslaved to Satan. And the crazy thing is, they don't realize it, number one, and number two, they wouldn't want it any other way. So who would save the day for Israel? Who would be the righteous one to come and fight for them? Only someone who isn't in the ranks of the army, apparently. Of course, we know how this ends out. We know what happens here. We know that it's David who will serve as an illustration, as a foreshadowing or a type, if you will, of the one who stepped down from heaven to save us from enslavement to the satanic forces at work in this world, of course, that would be the true and greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Uh, this is a big text of uh, a big portion of text, verses twelve to thirty. It says, "Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men." The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the second to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand, and look into the welfare of your brothers, and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper, and took the supplies, and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array against, uh, or shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper, and ran to the battle line, and entered in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath, named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines. And he spoke these same words, and David heard them. 
When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with his word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. Our response to difficulties and to dangers in life really does have a way of revealing exactly what we believe, what we truly believe. Not just what we intellectually can check off, but what we truly believe about God. It's a really simple principle, really, but the fact is that we see that Saul and all the men in Israel's army virtually have no faith in God, no confidence in God, no, no trust that He will deliver them. Of course, they never would have probably admitted that outright, but here they are in the most desperate situation of their lives, most likely, and not a single one of them had a, a faith that was able to withstand the winds of this fierce storm. Do you see how their faith, or lack thereof, is revealed by their inaction? We see exactly what they believed about God. And it wasn't much. It wasn't good. What we must understand as we approach this story is that the Old Testament teaches us in a manner that is very different from the epistles of the New Testament, but the message is really the same. Peter, for example, he'll lay out just a simple, profound, propositional truth like this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. That's how the New Testament words something. But this style here in the Old Testament is just very, uh, uh, very different. The New Testament is direct, straight to the point. The Old Testament teaches us the same thing in this passage, but it teaches us in story form, in illustrative form. So you tell me, can you see how this story is sort of like an illustration of this passage that says your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion? Do you see how... The connection, how they connect. In the stories of the Old Testament, one of the elements that we want to always be looking for, because this is important to telling something in story form, one of the elements that we want to be looking for is contrast. Contrast. In this case, there are a couple contrasts that we're going to be able to take note of. Uh, first of all, Saul's overwhelming fear is being contrasted with David's overwhelming faith. 
his overwhelming confidence. Uh, He's exuding confidence, David is, while Saul is cowering in faith. Saul is the tallest man in Israel, and David is, he's just, he's a kid still, uh, too young to even be in the army yet. Unlike Saul, uh, he's undoubtedly kind of small in stature. But there's another contrast given in our text that I want to make sure that we make note of. Uh, We're given uh, Goliath's bio, kind of, his his details, uh, as a means of of showing us kind of what you might call his credentials, right? The things that would make him a mighty warrior uh, are all listed for us, right? But then we're introduced to David, and it's almost like we're reintroduced to him all over again, but we're not. The point is to compare David's credentials with Goliath's credentials. Goliath's credentials are are all of his physical attributes, his height, his size, his strength, the size of his armor, all these things, all the things that would cause anybody who, who looks at him to absolutely tremble and fear at him. But David's credentials were simply this, that he was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse. Those are David's credentials. So in one corner, you have a man who represents the the best, the biggest, the strongest that the world has to offer. You have the man who represents the most powerful, worldly, and demonic forces imaginable. And in the other corner, you have a man of whom it has been said, the Lord is with him. A man who has a covenant bond with the one true living God who created and who sustains the universe, and whose mercies are new every morning, and whose faithfulness is great. David wasn't even 20 years old here. So he wasn't qualified to be in the ranks of the army, but God orchestrated and ordered and ordained David's presence on the front lines another way. Uh, the, the families of the members of the army had to provide food rations for the soldiers in their families. And sometimes uh, the king and his commanding officers would receive food from the families as well. And so Jesse one day calls David and instructs him to bring some food to his brothers and to the commander of their, their unit. Uh, David uh, is, is sent to do something that seems very ordinary. In, in this scenario, he, he's a lot like you and me on any given day. He, he's just doing ordinary things. He has no idea what lies ahead. He has absolutely no clue that this would be one of those days that would define his life and be remembered for literally thousands and thousands of years. And similarly, each and every day, we don't know what challenges the day may bring us on any given day. We have no idea what might be just around the corner from us at any given moment. We have no idea when we're going to have an opportunity to make an impact on somebody that might last for eternity. William Blakey notes this. He says, quote, The opportunity may be given me of doing a great service in the cause of truth and righteousness, or the temptation may assail me to deny my Lord and ruin my soul. He thus goes on to suggest that it might be a good uh, habit to daily pray something along the lines of, quote, O God, be not far from me on this day. Prepare me for all that thou preparest for me. End quote. One thing is certain. 
eternity does wait. And there are people who do need us to make an eternal impact out there. And the Lord has called us to preach the gospel because that's the one thing that has an eternal impact on people's lives. One thing's certain, given the uncertainty of what lies ahead in our daily lives, every day, we must stay near to the Lord. We must stay near to the Lord. And David reminds us of that because what's clear as we proceed in the story is that that's where David is. He's a picture of where we should be. That is close to the Lord. So David wakes up early the day after being given these instructions from his father, and he does exactly what his father had instructed him to do. He brings the food for the officers, and he drops it off, and he rushes to the front lines to find his brothers. And upon finding his brothers uh, and starting to to converse with them, uh, out comes Goliath to do what Goliath has been doing for now 40 days. He's taunting, and they're God. David watched and listened with great interest, apparently, as the men of Israel did nothing about these taunts and threats. As the men of Israel cowered in fear at the presence of this mere mortal, uncircumcised Philistine. And this had been the same story, playing out over and over again for 40 days. And that's significant, by the way, 40 days. That should always grab your attention. Because in the Bible, the number 40 represents a test or a trial. Uh, So Moses led the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years, right? Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. So 40 represents a period of testing. And what this all means is that Israel has completely failed this test. They have completely failed this challenge to their faith. Truth be told, what Goliath has done for 40 days is to test not their military might, but test their faith in God. And for us, the trials of our lives have a way of doing the same thing, don't they? Trials have a way of testing our, our, our faith in God. Of showing us that we have nothing to stand on except Him. And are we willing to do it? Indeed, our response to the difficulties and dangers that we face has a way of revealing what we really believe about God, doesn't it? The question for the Israelites was really not, how tough is your toughest warrior? That's, that's the surface question, right? How tough is your toughest warrior? That's not the real question. The real question isn't how tough is your toughest warrior. The real question is do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? And now we have to understand that this is really what the test at hand is because David certainly does. David understands that that's what this is all about. That's why he's so disgusted. That's why he's so revolted, you might say, by what he sees. He's absolutely horrified to see that every single one of them is fleeing from Goliath and every single one of them is filled with fear at a time when someone needed to step out in faith and trust in the Lord. I can only imagine that David must have had a very perplexed expression on his face as he witnessed this, and that would explain why the soldiers were really quick to try to kind of justify or try to um, excuse their fear. They say to David, have you seen this man who is coming up? Uh, Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. 
now somebody tells you that, you start thinking, well, what's our leader going to do about this? So they continue by telling David, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will, uh, will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That's quite a bounty. So the two options that every man in Israel has was faced with here were either to A, become enslaved to the Philistines, or B, to step out in faith and either die or get rewarded abundantly. Surely somebody would have taken the king up on his offer, but not a single one of them, not a single one had the faith to step out. They preferred to be enslaved. And so they were. Already, even at this point, they're being controlled by Goliath. They're already enslaved to him. Richard Phillips notes in his commentary that, quote, Saul's royal failure is now complete. Not only has he failed in his calling to be Israel's champion, but his leadership has not inspired a single soldier to defend the cause of his king, his nation, and implicitly his God. End quote. It's a bad situation. The problem here was that the army was just following their leader. Just as, as Saul was a man who lacked any real faith in God, none of his soldiers, not even one of them, had any true faith in God either. If it's true that the righteous are bold as a lion, what do you call this group? They're not righteous. See, they're already enslaved to Goliath because he instills so much fear in them. Not that they wouldn't have probably been able to check off all the boxes and make an orthodox profession of faith, right? I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, that they would have. Uh, but ultimately, the real test of faith isn't just what you know. Rather, it's how does your faith change the way that you act? Because real faith does bear fruit. Real faith does change the way that we think and the way that we behave. Real faith has everything to do with how we think, how we speak, how we act, how we... everything. Faith without works is dead. Real faith is going to bear fruit. But David doesn't have a dead faith. David has a living and active faith. He might be the smallest, he might be the youngest person on the battlefield that day, but his faith towers above the faith of his countrymen. His response to this challenge is classic and memorable. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I love that. Who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Now, what's the significance of circumcision? It's a sign of the covenant. So I imagine that it went pretty quiet as David you know, spoke these words for a moment uh, as the soldiers thought to themselves, huh, well, when you put it like that, I don't know. Uh, but, but here's the difference between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines served dumb and mute idols. But Israel represented, and they were supposed to be serving the one true living God. And listen, friends, having a living God should make all the difference. Having a living God, as opposed to a dumb, mute idol who can't do anything except sit there, that should make all the difference in the world. 
Again, circumcision was a sign of the covenant that Israel had with God. David is simply pointing out that a man who has no covenant with the living God shouldn't be perceived as a threat to a man who does have a covenant with the living God. But the difference is the word living. Having a living God should make a difference. David's faith is bold, isn't it? It's so bold it's offensive to his brother, to even his own brother. Did you catch that, by the way? We're told in verse 28, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. Ah, When your faith offends even people who are close to you, there's no shot that's too low. The sad reality is that there's sometimes even a common ground between our obviously satanic enemy uh, foes and, and people that we are close to who should have known better. Sometimes there's even a commonality between them. But Eliab lashes out in this way because he's had his pride injured. He's the oldest brother. His, his youngest brother shouldn't be doing what he was supposed to do. So he has to say something, right? And so he does. Because the size of David's faith has put him to shame. And instead of cowering in fear like he did with Goliath, uh, Eliab blashes out at David, which was apparently a whole lot easier than doing what Eliab should have been doing, which was repenting and putting his faith in the one true living God. That's what he should have been doing, but it was easier to sling mud at David. The fact of the matter is that David is simply standing firmly on God's promises. His response to this danger reveals what he believed about God. Just as surely as Saul's response revealed what he believed about God. And Eliab's response revealed what he believed about God. And the same is true for you and me, friends. If we aren't willing to stand on biblical truth, it reveals that we don't really believe it. If we're more inclined to think and to speak and to act like the world around us does when trials and troubles come, it shows that we have more confidence, more, more faith, if you will, in the ways of the world than we do in biblical truth. You can stand on biblical truth. You can stand on God's promises. You can cash those checks. The funds are in there. But the way that we respond to troubles and trials and difficult circumstances should be very different from the way that the world responds to the same types of circumstances. Make no mistake about it. The world does face their own types of trials and temptations and troubles. And they have their ways of dealing with those things. But their ways of dealing with difficult circumstances should be altogether different from how we as Christians respond to difficult circumstances because they don't know God. And we do. They don't have promises to stand on. We do. And so the way that we respond should be different from the world's. The way that we respond to difficult circumstances reveals what we truly believe about God. 
See, the world is filled with Goliaths who taunt Christians by saying things like, you know, hey, you actually believe what your Bible says? Do you know how many people wrote that Bible? Do you know how many times it's been retranslated? Those are ridiculous arguments that don't, don't even bear any truth. They've just heard them somewhere else and they're just regurgitating them. Or they'll say things like, you know, your, your God is so hateful. My God is a God who loves everyone. And my response to that is, yes, your God, little g, is just a dumb and mute idol that looks and thinks and speaks exactly like you do, while my God, capital G, is the one true living God. And that makes all the difference. Let me ask you this. How are church-going Christians in our day and age going to possibly take a stand against the intellectual and atheistic Goliaths of our day? Because they are out there in force. The answer is by standing on biblical truth. And let the chips fall where they may. Let the consequences for that be whatever they are. But that has to start with the church actually knowing and preaching biblical truth. It's a terrible, terrible judgment upon our country that in our day our biggest churches aren't teaching biblical truth as much as they're teaching people how to have your best life now. How are your kids? How are your kids going to know what it looks like to stand on biblical truth if we don't, first of all, ourselves, firmly teach them what biblical truth is, and secondly, maybe more importantly, demonstrate in our own lives, model for them in our own lives what it looks like to stand on and to stand for biblical truth. How will they stand up to the challenges? How will they stand up to the taunts of the intellectual and atheistic Goliaths out there? The answer is the same way that we must. By heeding Paul's instruction from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's how we do it. That's how we stand on God's promises. That's how we stand for biblical truth. And as you go through the, the armor of God as he lays it out in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 14 to 17, you have to see that it all centers on faith in God and faith in his word. Uh, Paul continues saying, Stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you don't have the Word of God... What do you have? Nothing. If you don't have faith, you don't have any of these things. And you can't stand against the enemy's attacks. But faith, faith, the, all these things are centered on having faith in God. See, the Israelites, I mean, they could have had all the best armor in the world that uh, was available to any army. But if they didn't have the armor of God, they were powerless against the enemy of their souls. And so are you and I, friends. So are you and I. The challenge here is to know God and to trust God, to put our faith in God, to stand on His promises 
and we get to know God, and we get to, to see and, and read His promises when we know our Bibles and when you truly, truly know God, you cannot help but trust Him if you truly know Him. David challenges us here. He, he summons us and he provokes us to not retreat in fear when confronted by the challenges and the trials that we face in this world, but instead to stand on God's Word and to advance in the name of the one true living God, empowered by the Spirit that He has bestowed upon us. David was surrendered to God's will, and thus he was willing to take on God's enemies. But, as good as David was, and as great as his faith was, and as bold as he is here, David was a sinner. And thus he couldn't defeat our real enemy, our greatest enemy. He couldn't defeat death. Only Jesus, the one that David is a foreshadowing of, a type of, he points us to Jesus. Only Jesus could defeat that enemy. Only in Jesus can we say, O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Paul explains the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55-57. to The fact is, friends, that our enemies do not compare. They do not hold a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot stand against Him. He has defeated them all, ultimately. There are many Goliaths in our time. There are many things that would cause us to fear or to doubt God. But what will you do? What will you do? Will you walk in fear before them? Or will you walk by faith and stand on His promises? I pray that you would walk by faith and stand on His promises because your life and everything in this world is not about your glory. It's about God's. And God is greater than even the fiercest trials that you and I could possibly ever face. He has made promises to us in His Word. And He is faithful to both His promises and to His people. That means if you are one of His people, if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God is not only with you, but He's for you. And God is greatly glorified when we stand firmly on His promises, regardless of what may come in the most difficult trials, God's glory, God's strength, His power, His grace is most clearly seen in our weak and feeble lives because it's all for His glory. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the way that Your Word instructs us. Thank You for the way that Your Word corrects us and even rebukes us. We thank You, Lord, for Your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. And Your faithfulness is greater than we could possibly believe. But You have sent Your Son to save us from the evil one. 
to save us from ourselves, to save us from your wrath. And he has laid his life down for us. The sinless one for the sinners, the guiltless for the guilty, in order that we may be reconciled to you, in order that we may be set free from enslavement to sin, enslavement to the enemy, in order that we may be placed on the narrow path that leads to life in Christ by your grace and that you enable us and empower us to walk this narrow path by, all by your grace in order that your power and your might and your glory may be seen. Oh Father, we are such frail people. We are such whimsical people. We pray that in our weakest moments, that you would give us the grace to draw near to you, that your glory and your grace would not only sustain us, but that it would be seen by the world around us, that it would be a testimony of your goodness, your goodness in using even the weakest, vilest of sinners to bring glory to yourself. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.